Okay, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through to 22. Peter and John before their Sanhedrin. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could not see the man who had been healed standing with them, there was nothing they could say. So they, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could, they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here. If you're here for the first time as well, welcome particularly to you in amongst the welcome to those for whom this is the hundredth <clears throat> or the tenth time, whatever it is. Great to see you. <clears throat> let's pray together. Excuse my voice, still a little bit weak, so let's pray that God would hear, help us to hear his voice this morning. Father, we thank you. that you speak to us and we want to hear your voice. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would set us free. You'd set us free if there's perspectives we have on you that are wrong. You'd set us free as if there's things we think about ourselves that are wrong. That you'd set us free, Lord, to see just how good you really are. We might leave this morning 
changed people. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' good name. Amen. We live in a world of fake news, don't we? False claims, where adverts promise the world and don't deliver the world. We get used to hoping that a particular product will change our lives, whether it be a new top or a new car or a new gadget or a new house or a new job or a new partner or a child or anything. We get used to hoping that they'll change our lives and make everything okay. And then a week later or a month later or a year later or a decade later, we're still longing for more. We live in a world of fake promises and fake news. And this struck me recently in a moment with some friends where we were playing around with our phones. Now put your hands up if you've got an iPhone. Now on iPhones, there's something called Siri. Siri is the sort of assistant on iPhone where you can ask Siri questions. I'm sure there's equivalent on Androids and other phones and so on. And we, with some, my, my, with some friends, we were just messing about, as you do, and I decided to ask Siri a question. And the question was, and what you have to do is you have to say, hey Siri, and then the seeing any phones go bing, uh, hey Siri, what's the best restaurant in Birmingham? Here, genuinely, is the screenshot of Siri's answer. Are you ready? When I said, ask Siri, what's the best restaurant in Birmingham? The best rated one I see is McDonald's restaurant in West Bromwich with an average of two and a half stars. Genuine, genuine screenshot. Now, I don't want to judge you if that is your favorite restaurant in Birmingham. Bless you if it is. But even in our world of fake news and fake promises, I would guess that for many of us, if we went to McDonald's restaurant in West Bromwich, hoping for the best restaurant in Birmingham, we might, might, be slightly disappointed. You may not be, I don't wanna judge. But it got me thinking about the series that we're in the middle of at the moment. We're doing this series across all our sites, both here and in our services at Queensbridge as well, uh, called When the End is the Beginning, when we're looking at the end of Luke's Gospel, where we read all about Jesus dying for our sin, all the rubbish stuff so that we can be right with God, and then coming back to life again. And then we read at the beginning of Acts, the book of Acts, so you've got the end of Luke's Gospel and the beginning of Acts, how this news has changed everything And then God sends his spirit onto this fledgling group of followers of Jesus. And the church is born. And of course, we see that growing. And we now live in the light of that 2,000 years later on. How the end of something is actually the birth of something new. Of course, it's true in our lives. And it's true down through history. And it's certainly true in the church. But if you're like me, when you've been reading, going through this, and we look at the early chapters of Acts where we read about our history 2,000 years ago, when the church began to take shape, I read it with a mixture of excitement, but if I'm honest, a bit of sadness too. The sadness being that there's so much promise there And yet I don't see that in my life. And the church is 
doing things and seeing things happen that we don't so often see in our day or in our church. And yet the exciting bit is the potential that maybe God in his good grace in our lives and in our church may be doing things that we don't see or may continue to do these things in our times. And today I wanna share something of my heart really because if I'm honest, when I read these words and I look at our age today, there's 10 things that strike me about early Christianity compared to today. And we're going to go through those 10 things. This is a 10-point sermon. I want to manage your expectations by saying the first point is way longer than the rest. So if after the first of these 10, you're thinking, what? I've got to get home today. Don't worry. The other nine are much briefer than the first one. But there's 10 things that strike me about the early church in the passage that Will read to us compared to our age today that both inspire me and hopefully encourage me and encourage you too. And here's the first one. And this, if you like, is a summary of all the rest. That the Christian message is good news for self-sufficient religion. You see, the context of the story is these fledgling followers of Jesus have done something miraculous. They've just healed somebody who couldn't walk from birth. That is a big deal. And so the religious leaders of their day are freaking out at this. But then it's interesting what happens. They call them, these disciples, in front of them to explain themselves. And we read these words. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking. And if you want to know who they were, verse 5 and 6 make it clear. They meet together after this. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. Caiaphas, John, Alexander, others of the high priest's family. These people were the ruling authorities of the day. They were the Sadducees. Do you see that word? The Sadducees. Now, if you don't know anything about the Sadducees, they were like the political elite of God's people in those days. And they didn't believe in life after death. They believed that change would happen now through kind of political means and through our own hard work. And therefore, they cozied up to the ruling leaders of the day, the Roman Empire, hoping that by that they might influence change in their nation. Lasting change, they thought, comes through us being obedient, us living for God, us making a difference in our nation. And then along come these apostles, these people they've never heard of, not only doing amazing things, healing someone who couldn't walk from birth, but look, verse two, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And that's the nub of the issue. Because even though they've done something amazing healing this guy, that's not what's freaking them out so much as what they're teaching. And what they're teaching is that lasting change has come through Jesus by raising him from the dead. In other words, their belief that change comes through us is shattered. Because I don't know about you, 
but I've got no chance of beating death. I need help to do that. Just ask a doctor. And this got me thinking about our view of Christianity. And dare I say it, our view in the Western world of church. Because when I reflect on my life, so much of the emphasis is on what I need to do. The things I need to change, the areas I need to improve, the way I need to be a better husband, a better dad, a better preacher, a better worker, a better friend, a better child. And of course, that message is reinforced all throughout culture. You need to be more beautiful, so just buy this product. You need to have a better marriage, you need to work harder. You need to be a better parent so that your children flourish. In other words, it's all about what we do. It's placing something on us that the change is from within. And I began to realize this many years ago when I went to university. So I grew up in a Christian home in a really lovely, good church. I grew up with parents who taught me about Jesus from very early age. I knew the Bible stories. I knew what Christianity was about, or so I thought. And yet when I went to university for the first time, I had freedom beyond parental control to do the kind of things I'd seen on TV. And I lived basically a double life. Over here, I was the Christian that knew it all. I knew a lot of stuff. I was involved in the Christian Union. I was regularly active in church. I was a leader. And yet over here, well, hey. And that continued until one day, God broke me. And the reason he broke me, or the way he broke me, was fascinating. Because if you'd have asked me when I was doing this and this, deep down, I think I believe that God was fundamentally kind of against me. And that therefore me living for him when I was over here, all was good, he was pleased. Well done, Tim. And over here at the weekends, boo, I don't like you, Tim. And so therefore, I then lived with this shame and guilt, and I couldn't share it with anyone else because I was over here. Deep down, I fundamentally believed my acceptance before God was on how well I was doing. And God broke me when he realized that my own sin was way deeper, way bigger than even I was beginning to realize. And yet in that sin, he had done something incredible that meant regardless of whether I thought I was doing well or not, I was loved beyond my wildest dreams. In other words, the change was not from me at all. It was from him when I realized that Jesus had died for my sin, had beaten death for me. My own sense of well-being before God was nothing to do with me. In other words, this cartoon was very apt for me. We live in a culture in which we're trying to improve things. Self-help is a massive industry, and yet the reality is all of us know if we're relying on ourselves to change, one day that is gonna come crushing down and flatten us. The good news of Jesus is good news. It's got nothing to do with us. How do we know that? Well, look at what the disciples say. As they're explaining themselves, they say, salvation is found within how well we're doing in life. No. 
Salvation is found in no one else, not even you. It's found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved apart from Jesus. That is good news, friends. And there lies real freedom and hope. And the other nine things unpack that freedom and hope. Because look at what it does. The second key difference is we see the courage they had. Now again, they were speaking about Jesus regardless of the consequences. If you're anything like me, you can come along to church, you can hear a good talk, you can read a book, and you think, I've got to be more courageous. Yeah. And you go pumped, and then the week begins, and then you're slightly less pumped, and then you're in that conflict, and you're like, Ugh. And of course, if it's all about us, we end up wilting. It's just a burden we can't carry. I don't have the strength to be courageous. I'm afraid. And yet, when they realize that Jesus has risen from the dead, they've got nothing to fear. If you have nothing to fear because even death itself is beaten, then of course you've got the power to be courageous. Look, verse 13 makes it clear. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. Why? Because of how spectacular they were? No because they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The courage is not because they were particularly courageous. The courage is because they'd been with Jesus and therefore how can we not be courageous? Because we've got the king above all kings who's even beaten death on our team. Brilliant. That struck me a few years ago when I was in, I heard of a guy who was dying of cancer. And I heard his story as he was interviewed in front of his church And basically, he'd been told he'd now got one new therapy that was fresh off the blocks. And they were just going to try this because if there was nothing else, that was it. This was the last thing. And to be honest, they had no idea whether this trial was going to work. And so he was being interviewed in front of the church. And the person interviewing him said, "Uh, how are you feeling about this? And he said, I'd love you to pray that it would work, obviously. And then he said these words, but to be honest, if it doesn't work, I don't mind. And he said, because Jesus has beaten death, I'm not afraid. Friends, if Jesus is alive, we can be courageous, not because we're courageous, but because Jesus is alive. The third thing out of that then is, the ordinary became extraordinary. We live in a culture in which we're taught to say everything is extraordinary. Now, look at the person next to you. Go on, actually look at the person next to you. Two things about them, they are extraordinary. They really are, and they're also ordinary. (laughs) Now, we live in a culture where we have these sort of sayings on our fridge. We meet no ordinary people in our lives, and we love those kind of things. And of course, if everybody's extraordinary, nobody's extraordinary. But we love kind of the sense of, yeah, we're all extraordinary. And of course, there's something right about that. You are made in God's image. Therefore, there is something incredible about you, regardless of what you achieve in life or not. Regardless of where your background, how well-educated, whatever. You are extraordinary. You are made in God's image. And yet, there's something amazing about how ordinary these disciples were that God uses in extraordinary ways. Look, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, there was nothing within them that was particularly extraordinary. And I think that's immensely freeing because the good news of Jesus, therefore, is not about us again. 
And therefore, in your life, in your ordinary humdrum situation tomorrow, when you're at work, when you're at home, when you're with friends and you're just thinking, my life can't make a difference, God can and does do extraordinary things with your ordinariness. I think that's good news. How do I know that? Well, I had to look up who the Sadducees were. They were the impressive leaders of their day. Tomorrow, when you're with friends at work, home, ask them what they know about the Sadducees. I'd be really interested if any of them have even heard of them, let alone know anything. Then ask them what they know about the church. And I'm guessing a lot of people will know about something about the church. Here we are, 2,000 years later on. They believe they were the ones that were going to make the change, and yet here we are talking about the church, ordinary people. God can do extraordinary things through your ordinary life. It's good news. Fourth thing is this. We forget so easily that lives were transformed then. This might be obvious, this might be a no-brainer, Tim. Of course we know this. But what they were doing worked. <laughs> Look again. They're called to speak, to explain what on earth has been happening. And we read these words. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. It's not about us, he's saying. We're not special, but Jesus is, and therefore lives were changed. I don't know if you know that right now, today, literally right now, there are several people over at our Mosley site being baptized right now. Testimony to the fact that God is still in the business of changing people's lives. And we so easily forget that, that your friends, your family, the workplace you're in, God might be working through you in extraordinary ways to change their lives. It's good news. We can go with expectation. The fifth thing out of that then is this. Do you notice how unstoppable the truth is? They can't stop the disciples. Word is getting out. Lives are being changed. The truth will always win out. The man was there in their presence being healed. Your story if you're a follower of Jesus. Nobody can deny that. They can try and explain it away, but it is your story. And can I say, friends, when you share your story, not with all the clever arguments, you just share what God's done in your life, people are blown away. They are. Because the truth is unstoppable. Sixth thing is this. I'm racing now. It strikes me as how natural it was that they talked about Jesus. Do you see that? It's amazing. A couple of weeks ago, I was involved in doing some training to church leaders. It was all about evangelism, all about how to tell people about Jesus. <laughs> I have no idea why they asked me to do it. But anyway, there I was in front of this group of church leaders. And at the end of the day... I felt nothing but an overwhelming flatness, a numbness. And I think the reason why, as I reflected on why I felt like that, is because I sensed that I'd left everybody with this sense of a burden of what they needed to do. And can I say, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, 
and you leave church on a Sunday feeling overwhelmed and burdened by more that you need to do in your life, can I say I'm sorry? The good news of Jesus is really good news. And my hope and prayer is that as we walk out the door, we don't leave thinking, whoa, there's so much I need to do. We leave thinking, wow, isn't Jesus amazing? Because these guys, they didn't need to be told to tell people about Jesus. They just knew the difference Jesus had made and so they did tell people about Jesus. Just ask anyone that's in that early fledgling state of new love. I won't ask for any show of hands who's at that stage at the moment. But you know what it's like, you can't shut them up. I remember a friend of mine putting me in quite an awkward position where he said, Tim, but she's amazing, isn't she? And you think, she is, but I'm not quite sure what you're asking me to say. Yes, she's stunningly beautiful. But you know what it's like? New love, they're so obsessed with each other that they can't be quiet. You don't have to tell them to tell others about how impressive their fiance or whatever it is. Of course, the same is true here. They knew the difference Jesus had made, and so therefore they did talk about him. They didn't need to conjure it up to say, come on, talk about him. And so friends, if you know in your own life like me that you're somebody who's a little bit cautious, sometimes a little bit nervous, there's two ways we can approach that. One, we can beat ourselves up by saying, come on, be more courageous, come on, you've got to do it. Or by beginning to spend time with Jesus and realizing just how much he's done for us. That results in speaking about him. Seventh thing is this. They knew that their story wasn't just their story. So what happens is they're there in front of the ruling authorities. The ruling authorities do not know what to do with them because they've basically told them they can't say anything and yet there's this guy healed in front of them. And so they can't deny that this guy's life was changed but they don't want him talking about it so they simply go, I don't know, please don't do it anymore. And then you've got this amazing thing where the disciples then go back to the rest of the church. And we read some astonishing words. Let me read it. They go back. They welcomed. On their release, verse 23, Peter and John went back to their people, reported all that happened. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. That's normal. You know, they've just been put in prison. They've just been told by the government not to do it anymore. I would pray. But it's astonishing what they pray compared to, if you're honest, prayers like mine. This is what they pray. They prayed, Lord, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, they began to realize that what they were part of was not just their little world. They were part of God's great big picture and the same is true of your life. When you go to work tomorrow in your family, amongst your friends, God is doing something way beyond you. That even in generations to come, there may be people who are able to say, I am changed because of something you did to somebody else or something you said to somebody else. You have the potential to be part of a much bigger story. You are part of a much bigger story. God is at work through this church, through other churches building his kingdom. Your life's not just about you, friends. Which is why when it comes to their prayer, it's astonishing. Do you notice what they prayed for? They said, now, Lord, consider their threats and protect us. No. 
Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your servant, Jesus. It's a surefire way not to get opposition, not speak about Jesus. And yet they knew they were part of a bigger picture and so their prayers weren't protect us. Their prayers were, Lord, in the middle of this, may we keep on speaking of you. May we keep on helping others to realize that Jesus really is alive. May we keep on boldly declaring that Jesus has changed everything. That's the kind of prayer that changes the world. Why? Well, as we come to number nine, the pilots begin to say we're coming to land. What's stunning and what's noticeable is that the power to change wasn't from within themselves. Let me read again, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. In a moment, we're gonna pray that, that God would fill us with his spirit so that we might be real change makers beyond here, not because it's about us, because God is at work in us and through us. It's not about courage or self-skill. It's about God. Which is why we come to our last point, and this is the thing that, if you like, the sandwich of these 10 points. I just get the sense that there is an overwhelming sense of freedom in the church there. The circumstances they were in were way harder than the circumstances many of us are in. And yet their freedom, their joy, their hope, their peace was way greater than the things that often many of us have in our lives. You've got the government and the police telling you to stop, putting you in prison about it, and yet they feel this sense of freedom. And the reality is many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now face way greater pressure than we do and yet keep on speaking of Jesus because they know Jesus really is the only hope. And that sense of freedom I want to leave you with because Jesus didn't say, come to me and change, buck up your ideas, son. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. That's me. I'm sure it might be you. And I will give you a list of things you need to change. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you're anything like me and you are a follower of Jesus, you get that and something rises within you, and yet you keep returning to it being all about me. And so we join with the words of Paul when he said it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm them and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It's not about you. It's not about how well you're doing. It's about the fact that Jesus has set you free. Free. And so I close with these words. This is the kind of freedom. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water 
along that river will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert of our lives. Friends, that's good news. May we be good news people for the sake of our world that Jesus died for. Let's pray together.